Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56. God's word speaks to us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he heard, they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages or cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Ashley. Well, good morning. My name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. How are you guys doing this morning? You okay? Everybody doing good? Good. Well, it's really good to be here today. Uh, together with you. 3,000 years ago, um, King David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. So as glorious as Solomon's temple was that, that David's son would soon build, it was nothing compared to what was inside the temple, which was the presence of God and the people of God. It's the same with us here today. It's the presence of God as he meets with us and the people of God who we are 
that makes this um, an experience of gladness. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us today as we, um, as we look into these verses in Mark chapter 6. Father, we, we come to you, and, and Lord, we just confess to you that we're so grateful that you do come and meet with us. Lord, you, you help us, you open our eyes, Lord, you open our ears. We're asking that you do that again today, Father, that you would help us to be sensitive to your spirit. I pray that you would help me, Lord, to speak your word with clarity today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you think about all the miracles that Jesus performed, and, and there were really a lot of them, um, Jesus healed the, the paralytic man at, the, um, at the, the pool of Siloam. He cast the legion of demons out of the, the garrison man. He raised Jairus' little daughter from the dead. Um, he healed blind Bartimaeus. He healed uh, people who, um, who had horrible skin diseases. See, he did all those things, but only one of the miracles that he did is talked about in all four Gospels. Now, most of them are recorded in three and some two of the Gospels, and a few of them are only mentioned in one Gospel. But the story that we just read from Mark chapter 6 is unique in the Bible because it's the only one of Jesus' miracles that is described in all four Gospels. That used to bother me. I thought, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these guys were all seeing the same thing, so why didn't they tell exactly the same story with the same details? They, they saw the same thing, right? Or did they? Um, J. Warner Wallace is an LAPD cold case detective who began studying the Gospels to disprove their authenticity to his wife, who had just become a Christian. So, but what he saw instead was that the four Gospel accounts mirrored what he experienced every day as he interviewed people um, in a, at a crime scene. He would see um, witnesses that saw what was happening each from their own perspective and they gave their own testimony about what they saw. And some of the people would give such differing testimonies that he, was, he wondered if, you know, are we describing the same incident here? And yet, when he put all those things together, they became a tapestry that described for him what happened at that crime scene. Um, Wallace, in his book, Cold Case Christianity, says that if all his witnesses ever relate exactly the same facts and give the same details, then what he knows is that they've all gotten together in a conspiracy to kind of cook the books and get their story straight and their testimony is worthless. And by the way, in case in, in um, opposition to him being able to disprove to his wife the Bible, uh, Wallace became a believer. So though each of the gospel writers um, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each of those four guys was also writing from what he saw and also from who God had made him, 
from, from the things that Jesus did that spoke to him. So uh, Matthew was a tax collector. And as a tax collector, the book that he wrote has lots of facts and figures in it. See, it's exactly what you would expect to see from a CPA. John, on the other hand, was a fisherman. And his book is very organic. And it, it ebbs and it flows like the sea. So, though our text today is from the book of Mark, we're going to bring in some other details from those other three Gospels that I think will synthesize together to give us a clearer picture of what happened that day and then into that night on and around the Sea of Galilee. So the last two weeks, we've, uh, we've spent uh, a lot of time looking at some kind of amazing things in Mark chapter 6. First, Jesus has given authority to his disciples to go out, heal the sick, and cast out demons. Then last week, Pastor David led us through the complicated relationship between John the baptizer, Herod the king, and Herod's wife, Herodias, that ended with John being executed. Now this week picks up with the disciples returning from that mission that they'd been sent on and reporting to Jesus what had happened. So verse 30 of chapter 6 reads, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to the desolate place by themselves. So if you were here a couple of months ago when we were in Mark chapter 2, you'll remember that we looked at a map of the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding area. And so if you look at the map, you'll see um, uh, up at the top, the Jordan River that flows in from the north. That's where John had been baptizing. Um, off here to the west, we've got Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. North of that is Cana, where Jesus kept the, uh, the wedding feast going by uh, producing about 40 gallons of really high-quality wine. Um, over on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee is Mary Magdalene's hometown. So a lot happens um, in this area. Um, things had become so hectic around Jesus and around his boys that they didn't even have time to eat. So this is, is definitely time to call an audible. Well, the elders at Frontline have a, a little saying that we're determined to live by. We want to use the ministry to build people and never use people to build the ministry. See, we get that from what Jesus was, uh, was doing here with his disciples. See, he didn't want to let his disciples get consumed by the demands of the ministry. But there's something else at play here, too. Matthew tells us in chapter 14 that it was also the news about John's execution that prompted Jesus to retreat to a desolate place for some rest. So they got into the boat and they left the crowds behind. Now, the red line up there um, shows us the, the trip that they took across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum to that desolate place. Now, 
it's easy for us to underestimate the impact that John's death had had not only on the disciples, but also on his cousin, Jesus. Um, as David pointed out last week, John had been a miracle baby, see, born to elderly parents. But his birth had not been on the magnitude of the miracle of Jesus' birth. But almost nobody in first century Judea knew that. Luke tells us that after John's birth, great fear came upon all the neighbors and everyone in the hill country of Judea was talking about him. And the question that was on everybody's lips is, what then will this child become? John was the miracle baby. He was the golden boy. It was totally different with Jesus' birth. His birth did not look miraculous. It looked scandalous. See, it looked like what happens when teenagers of the opposite sex spend too much unchaperoned time alone together. See? Only Mary, Joseph, and a handful of other people knew the truth about what had happened. Nobody else was wondering what Jesus might turn out to be. So while John bursts on the scene at age 30, calling people to repentance, he would need to point out Jesus in the crowd so that anybody would even know who he was when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now John knew that his role was to prepare the way for Jesus. And in John 3, he says, He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So as Jesus' ministry began to rise, John's ministry began to wane. Then John got arrested and things got confusing for him. In Luke chapter 7, as John was in prison, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus asking him, are you the one or should we look for another? See, that's, that's a long ways from behold the Lamb of God. Well, now John's gone and Jesus and his disciples have pulled back to rest and to grieve the loss of their beloved brother, John. Verse 33 of chapter 6 tells us, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now John, in his account of this, says that the people were following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Matthew tells us that in addition to teaching them, Jesus also healed their sick. So it sounds as if the only rest that Jesus and the disciples got was on that boat trip across the Sea of Galilee. The crowds are already waiting for Jesus on, in the desolate place on the other side. So Jesus teaches them and heals their sick until it starts to get late. Verse 35 tells us, His disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. So Mark here says that it was his disciples who came up with this idea to send them away. John, on the other hand, names names. He says, it was Philip. <laughs> right? 
I love how the Bible doesn't shy away from allowing God's people to do dumb things sometimes and be recorded. I remember in the book of Acts when, um, when Peter had been arrested and put in prison and then the angel got him out and he shows up at the house where, um, you know, there's a, a prayer meeting in progress for him and uh, he knocks on the door and a little servant girl answers the door and, um, and she gets so excited that it's Peter that she just leaves him out there on the front porch. <laughs> Her name was Rhoda. The Bible records that for all times we will remember that Rhoda, you know, I mean, it's the most popular book that's ever been written in, in the history of the world. Rhoda is the one who left Peter out in the cold. <laughs> See, I think if I'd been around when the Bible was being written, some of the dumb stuff that I did might be recorded too. So that, that every time they, somebody read my name, they would kind of shake their head and smile, you know. Yeah, he really did that, didn't he? I would be Rhoda. Well, back in the desolate place, Philip does some quick calculations, and he figures out that it's going to take more than $30,000 to feed everyone if they could find a place where they could buy all that food out there. So Jesus asks his disciples what they have on hand. Um, They come up with two fish and five loaves of uh, barley bread. So he commands the disciples to have everyone sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And then he blesses the food, he breaks it, and he has the disciples pass it out. Verse 42 tells us that they all ate and were satisfied. This is an amazing miracle. Um, You know, we learn in verse 44 that there were 5,000 men. Matthew tells us in his book that in addition to the 5,000 men, there were also women and children. So let's be really conservative here and just say there were a minimum of 10,000 people there that day. And, and Jesus fed them all with two fish and five loaves of bread. We're going to come back to this in a little while. But then the day ends on kind of a strange note. Verse 45 says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So what's that about? John helps us out here from his account. In John 6, 14, he writes, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. So Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him because he had a crowd on his hands that was getting ready to turn into an unruly mob. So they had the disciples get out of there while they could. See, I wonder if he dispersed the crowd that day the same way that he calmed the storm. Peace. Be still. And that was the end of that. Mark 6.46 reads, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, so if we go back to our map, the disciples are heading back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, so it's the red line again on their way back, three or four miles. Mark says in the first, pers- the first part of verse 48 that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. Okay? They're heading west, and they've got a western headwind. Um, and now it's 4 o'clock in the morning, third watch of the night. They've been rowing all night and they haven't really gotten anywhere. I'm not sure what to do with the last part of verse 48. He meant to pass them by. Really? See, is this Jesus just out on a stroll on a stormy sea at midnight, walking along, and he really wasn't going to stop and get into the boat with the guys. He was going to go ahead and go to Capernaum, but they got afraid, and so he got into the boat. Well, Notice that when he gets into the boat, that the wind ceased. We'll say more about that later, too. But our story ends here with the disciples being utterly astounded. Mark also points out that they hadn't understood about the loaves, but that their hearts had been hardened. That's quite the account. Um, But what's the lesson for us here today? This is more than just a view into first century Judea, um, a storm and Jesus slow to learn disciples. We're in this story too, but where are we in this story? It's important that we not miss the lessons for us here. So though there are many more than three things that could be said about this, let's focus on three things for us today. Number one, the quantity of what we have on hand is not important when God is at work. The quantity of what we have on hand is not important when God is at work. The disciples were rightly concerned uh, for the welfare of those people in that desolate place where they found themselves. There were men, women, and children there who hadn't eaten, and there was no place to get food. See, I know what the frontline elders would probably be doing in that situation, which is exactly what the disciples were doing trying to care for the people. So Jesus asked them to take inventory. What do you have on hand? John's account, he tells us, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? See, that's a reasonable question. What are they for so many? Five loaves and two fish wouldn't even feed the disciples. You know, but God was at work here and and he wasn't going to be limited by the laws of nature. He'd already overridden those laws today by healing all those people. Food for 10,000 wasn't going to be a problem. In fact, 
they were getting ready to gather up 12 basketfuls of leftovers from those two fish and five barley loaves. Well, we need to stop here for a second and remind ourselves of something that Jesus said about his relationship to the Father that's really key here. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So if Jesus was multiplying loaves and fishes, it's because the Father had pointed him that direction. It wasn't just a good idea. Jesus was a man under authority. So did he always feed people whenever he healed them? No, he didn't. He did that whenever the Father directed him to do that. Well, there's two things from this part of the story that we need to always keep before us. First, God is not limited by what we have on hand, by our resources. And two, we need to be in close relationship with the Holy Spirit so that we'll know what he's up to in the moment. And when we do that, the provision will be there. As one old evangelist used to say, where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. So again, the quantity of what we have on hand is not important when God is wanting to do miracles. Number two, it's possible to see the miracle and miss the lesson. It's possible to see the miracle and miss the lesson. There's two groups in our story today, a, a small group and a really large group. The small one is Jesus' disciples. The really large one is everybody else. So 12 versus probably 10,000. But both of these groups have something in common. They had both missed the lesson of the miracle of the feeding of the multitude. Remember that John had told us that the reason the big crowd came together was because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. So who could blame them? See, there was no shortage of people in Judea who were sick and demonized. So Jesus, you know, the men, women, and children followed Jesus to that desolate place, and Jesus healed them. And then he fed them. But look at their response to him feeding them. They tried to force him to become their king. I mean, being healed is great, but being fed on a daily basis, see, that's priceless. So Jesus dispersed the crowd that night before things got out of hand. So if you continue reading in the book of John, you'll find things getting more and more contentious between Jesus and the people from that crowd. The next day, Jesus confronts the people because the only reason they were following him was because of the food. It's a familiar scenario and one that we struggle with all the time. They wanted God's stuff rather than God. But by the end of that conversation, the next day, John records that many who had been following him were not following him anymore. Then there's the smaller group that missed the lesson, Jesus' disciples. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So here's what I think is going on there. 
Jesus had done an undeniable miracle. Two fish and five loaves had just fed 10,000 people. But it was a really quiet miracle. No flashbang, but just as the disciples passed out food, more food just kept on coming. Jesus' disciples, clearer than anybody else that day, saw that miracle happen. It happened in their hands. But somehow, they had missed the lesson there. So later that night, Jesus showed them another miracle. Only this time, he temporarily sets aside the laws of nature and makes the wind and the sea obey him in a way that blew the disciples away. See, it's one thing to watch as fish and bread just quietly keep on coming. It's another thing um, for Jesus to walk out into gale force winds on a high sea, climb into the boat, and stop the whole thing on a dime. Okay. Remember what he said as he approached the boat, walking into the storm? Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That can equally well be translated, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. See? The God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush and identified himself as I am, the one who created the heavens and the earth, was getting ready to climb into that boat. See, the disciples probably then became more afraid than they had been before. It was their wake-up call. This was not about a steady supply of food. They were in the presence of him who both created and commands the winds and the waves. Mark said that their response to him was to be utterly astounded. Matthew says they worshipped him. The disciples had seen a miracle of provision in the feeding of the multitude, but it took an encounter with Jesus as he flexed on nature to get through to their hard hearts. So, how many times has God answered our prayers or spoken to us in a way that we knew was him? See, did we see that as our due, as our constant supply of food, like the crowd did? Or are we utterly astounded and do we worship him the way the, the disciples finally did in that boat? See, we need to be careful not to only see the miracle, but also to learn the lesson behind the miracle. Our God is an awesome God who deserves our lives laid down for him. Number three, Jesus will receive what we give him, bless it, break it, and give it out. So I think there's a pattern here that applies to all of life. First, Jesus didn't materialize the bread and the fish out of thin air. John tells us that there was a boy who gave them to him. So this miracle starts off with a real, live, skin-on-his-face person who gives Jesus the little that he had. Compared to the need, it wasn't much. But it was something. And we begin by giving him the little that we have. Sometimes it may look pathetically inadequate. We may look pathetically inadequate. But that's not the issue. The real question is, will we give ourselves to him to do with as he pleases? When we say yes to him and we offer ourselves 
as those living sacrifices, that's where the miracle begins. Second thing that Jesus did with the loaves and the fishes was to bless them. Now, I think there's more to this than him just giving thanks for them, though I do think that he thanked the Father for them. Um, I think he was also setting them aside for God's purposes. He was consecrating them. So they used to just be this boy's five loaves and two fish. Now they're God's five loaves and two fish ready to be used by him for his purposes. It's the same with us. When we say yes to Jesus, he sets us aside for God's purposes. Now, the third thing that he does with the loaves and the fish was to break them and give them out. And this is where it gets kind of dicey for you and me. It's one thing to present ourselves to the Lord and be set apart for his purposes. It's something else to be broken and given out. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 4, says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now listen to this. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So I think there's a temptation for us to say, yeah, but that was Paul. Uh, you know, he was a capital A apostle in the, the first century. Um, sure, he was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was struck down. Uh, but this is Edmond, Oklahoma in the 21st century. Uh, surely these things can't apply to us. See, we have the highest standard of living the world has ever known. But in God's upside-down kingdom, these things really do apply to us. In his kingdom, the way up is the way down. The greatest among us is the servant of all. The grain of wheat remains alone unless it dies and go in, goes into the ground. Then it brings forth a lot of fruit. Death works in us so that life can work in others. See, same, same. Now, I don't say these things to us today to be discouraging or be a downer. I share them because they're true and because they really are an expression of the Father's love for us. Much of what is being passed off as the gospel today is not the gospel at all. It's not good news, but it's a false hope for things in this life that this life can never provide us. See, we will experience joy in this life on the earth along with pain and suffering and misunderstanding. It was Jesus that said, in this world, you will have trouble. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. See? We need to see ourselves the way the Bible presents us as sojourners here, strangers here, looking for a better country. So Jesus will receive what we give him, 
including ourselves. He'll set us aside for God's purposes, and he'll make our lives count as we're used up serving him. Bible says that these things were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Not to give us a head full of Bible or to make us feel good or to make us feel bad, but to draw us closer to Jesus and his purposes. So I want to leave us today with one last picture of Jesus. This is the same Jesus who flexed on nature that night and reminded the disciples that the great I am was with them. Wouldn't be long after this story from Mark chapter 6 before he would be in an upper room with his guys, having just eaten a meal with them, his last meal with them. And he would get up, he would take off his outer garment, tie a towel around his waist, begin washing their feet and drying them with the towel. See, it was an intimate picture of what Jesus had been doing with them all along. And it was an expression of the love that he would be showing all of us the next day when he voluntarily went to the cross as a sacrifice for all our sin. The loaves and the fishes had been a foreshadowing of Jesus presenting himself to be broken and to be given. Given so that a great multitude from all nations and tribes and tongues would be made alive and be adopted into his family. His power is boundless. So is his love for you and me. Stand with me. I'd like for us to take a couple of minutes to, um, to respond to him. So, so where are you in this story? Um, are you needy and wanting to be healed? Are you full and hoping to figure out how to stay that way, how to keep the food coming? Or are you awed by the person of Jesus, the one who not only commands the winds and the waves, but who created them in the first place? See, lots of people there that day in that desolate place so long ago, lots of people who were in all different kinds of places, a lot like us today. So let's bow our heads now. Um, ask him to help you to see yourself in this story and then let him show you your next step towards him. Let's, eat, let's take a couple of minutes and each one of us respond to him. And then I'll close us in prayer.